Father in heaven, as we start this new study in First and Second Peter, boy, the word that's up above me right now and the word that Peter uses just captures it. We've been ransomed. And Father, that ransom was paid by you. So the things that we're going to be exploring, the things that we're going to be looking at, they touch us all very deeply. And I pray that we'll be willing to allow that to happen, that we might be touched deeply. Father, I'm going to ask you to teach us. We're all going to ask that. I'm going to ask you to make us ready to receive what you have for us. And I know that that will be very personal. So I pray your spirit will be working in every one of our lives. And I'm going to ask, Father, that you protect this time together as holy. And I pray, Lord, that in the process of that, the enemy will have no place here so we can focus and direct our attention to you. We ask that in Jesus' name with great expectation. Amen. Through the years, I have shared a Bible study technique with you that I absolutely love. I just love it because it is so very simple. Now, I would like to take credit for it and say that I'm the one who came up with this. I, that's just not the case. I got this from the holiest man I have ever known. His name is Ben Merrill. In November of this year, he will celebrate his one-year anniversary in the presence of Christ. And not that I believe 12 months matter in eternity, but he will have been there for 12 months. And man, what a joy that must be for him and for all those that he helped introduce the kingdom of heaven to that are already there. So that's where this came from comes from Ben Merrill. Again, it's a very simple Bible study technique. I encourage you to write it in the cover of your Bible so that you can go back to it and take a look at it on a regular basis. Here it is. Number one, read Genesis and Revelation. That's where you'll find God. Number two, spend time often in the Gospels. That's where Jesus is found. Number three, read Psalms regularly. It will help with your devotional life. Number four, get into Proverbs daily. That's where wisdom is found. And number five, read the book of Acts often. It'll make you want to do something. I really, really like the succinct way that that helps us understand how to break Scripture down. And if you never study the Bible past this, which would be tragic, but if you never study the Bible past this, you'll have everything that you need. So get into your Bibles. This morning, we're going to take this last one. Read the back book of Acts often. It'll make you want to do something. We're going to start in the book of Acts. That's not our destination. That's just where we're going to start. And it is my hope, it is my prayer that it will make you want to do something. Now, I'm going to read quite a bit out of the book of Acts. So we're going to project everything that I'm reading up on the screen. So really want to encourage you to keep your heads up and your eyes open, follow along with me up here so that you can stay focused. Now, like I say, I'm going to read quite a bit for you, but this is all good stuff. Starting in Acts chapter 4, verse 1. Listen close and read along. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, 
for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Amen? Amen. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say to the opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot, be, we cannot speak of what we have seen and heard. For we cannot but, there we go, speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of the people were all praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Now, we're going to skip over one more chapter to chapter 5 and kind of pick up on this exact same thing. This is Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the door, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. 
Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do to these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan is the undertaking of a man, it will fail." But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer, suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Now that's Peter. That is a wonderful look into who he was after Jesus ascended into heaven. He was bold, he was unashamed, and he was unafraid. Tasked by God to preach the gospel of Jesus to at least three different groups of people. Because you see, Jesus had given Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And he told him, whatever you bind on earth will be bound, or whatever you bind in heaven will be bound on earth. In essence, what he was saying to him was, I want you to open up the kingdom of heaven to the Jews, and then to the Samaritans, and then to the Gentiles. And in order to do that, Peter was going to have to find a boldness that was supernatural. And he did. You just saw it. Standing in front of all the rulers of the land, Peter said, you judge whatever it is that God has told you to do. But as for me, I have figured out what God's told me to do, and I will not be deterred. And he preached. He preached. Right in their face, he preached. Even when they said, stop preaching, Peter said, yeah, maybe not. And he kept preaching. And then they beat him, and Peter said, hey, thank you for that. May I please have another? Because you just did that because I preached, and I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to stop. Maybe in the midst of all of that, he was remembering the moment where Jesus gave him those keys to the kingdom of heaven. It's found in Matthew chapter 16, if you want to turn there with me. 
verse 13. Man, this is good stuff. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys, there it is, I will give you the keys, there's three of them, of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Three keys, three keys. If you read on through the book of Acts, you will find Peter using all three of those keys. First, he opened up the kingdom of heaven to the Jews, second to the Samaritans, and then to the Gentiles. He used all three of those keys to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified unto the transformation of those who would believe in Him. Peter used those keys well. After the ascension of Jesus into heaven, he would preach for roughly 30 years, maybe a few more than that, until he was executed for his faith. And the entire time he would find himself thinking, Jesus changed my life. Jesus changed my life and I am a better man for it and I want everybody to know who he is. So he boldly proclaimed the gospel of Jesus. 30, 35 years. And he wrote at least three books of the New Testament. The first one is the Gospel of Mark. That is Peter's gospel told to John Mark. John Mark wrote it down so that we would have it. It is the shortest and most succinct of the four Gospels, and it is very direct in its message. comes right from Peter. At the end of his life, he wrote two other letters, two other books. They're called First and Second Peter. We're going to spend the rest of the summer together and into the fall studying those two books. There's some great stuff in them. There really is. I want you to see it, and I want you to find something out of those books that will touch you deeply and help you understand the message that Peter was bringing. First and Second Peter are practical books. They are encouraging books. They are inspirational books. It is my hope that you will be inspired by them. So let's go to the book of First Peter together. We're going to look just at the, the first two verses today, so you can see why it's going to take us a few weeks. We're just going to look at the first two verses today. This is how it starts. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. What a great way to start. It really is. Now, I don't know if you like history. I'm a big fan of history, particularly biblical history. 
But I am aware of the fact, and please make no mistake about this, I am aware of the fact that for some people, biblical history is not inspiring. Biblical history is not something that you just love and want to eat up. But this morning, I'm going to share some with you, and I want to do it in light of the way Ezra presented some things, particularly in the realm of history. Now, you might think, how did Ezra do that? If you're going to do that in light of how Ezra did it, how did Ezra do that? I'm glad you asked. Back in the book of Nehemiah, when they were rebuilding the wall all the way around the city of Jerusalem, they discovered the scrolls of the Lord. The Jewish people hadn't seen them in a long time. The priest had not had access to them in decades And now they came across them, hidden and secured in the wall that surrounded the city, that ostensibly surrounded the temple. When they found them, they brought them to the priest Ezra and gave them to him. The construction workers found them, and they brought those to Ezra. And Ezra was so excited. He went to Nehemiah and showed him to Nehemiah and said, look what we now have in our hands. And Nehemiah got excited too. And he said, Ezra, do what you do with those. And Ezra Ezra the priest said, all right, I'm going to do what I do with these. Let's call all the people together and I'm going to read from them. And he did it. He did it all day long. So the people would stand out in front of the wall and Ezra and the other priest would stand up on the wall and they would just read for hours at a time from the scrolls of the Lord. Man, that's a preacher's dream, an absolute preacher's dream. But could you imagine you're standing there in the heat all day long and the priest is barely even taking a breath as he continues reading from the scrolls of God? Might get to be a bit of a long day for you unless... This happens. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. I love the way that is captured in the book of Nehemiah. They didn't just read from the scrolls. They gave the sense of what they were reading. That's preaching. They gave the sense of what was being shared so that people could understand it. Well, as we go through some of this biblical history, I want to give the sense of it so that hopefully it will mean something to you. That's going to be our goal as we go through this. So back in the book of 1 Peter, you actually saw how he started. He started with helping people understand the authorship of the book. Listen to this again. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ... That's exactly how he starts the book, so that there will be no mistake over who wrote these words. And even though Peter started that way, so that there would be no mistake, the authorship of these two books has been hotly contested through the years. It has been debated, it has been argued, fights have broken out over the authorship of these two books. Now, that is mind-boggling to me and most people that would open up their Bible and just read those words, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. It would seem like there is no room for question whatsoever. But the greatest debate that surrounds the authorship is the excellence with which the books are written. Now, let that soak in for just a second. The greatest debate surrounds the excellence with which the books are written. They are put together very, very well. 
You might remember as we were reading from the book of Acts, people looked at Peter because he was a fisherman and they believed that he was an uneducated, common man. That's how they saw him. Now, I'm not saying that that is true of every fisherman because, well, I, I consider myself a bit of a fisherman, so I don't always want people saying, well, fishermen don't have, don't have any sense at all. But that's kind of how they looked at Peter and his brother and anybody else that tried to make their living on the Sea of Galilee. They saw him as an uneducated, common man. And it may very well be true that he was uneducated. Peter had not just attached himself to a rabbi so that he would be taught all the things of the Old Testament, at least not until he attached himself to Jesus, the greatest teacher ever, and then he learned at his feet. My goodness, did he learn at his feet. And then he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit gave him the words to write. But let's take all of that and let's set it aside and just go back to his background. Was he an uneducated common man? Probably. But does that mean he was illiterate? Not at all. So let me ask you a question, and I just want you to let it roll around in your head a little bit. When you think of Peter, do you think of him before Christ as a successful businessman or a struggling businessman? Just kind of get it in your own mind. Was he successful or was he struggling? Remember, when he met Jesus, Jesus said to him and to his brother Andrew, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And right away, just straight away, they walked away from their business and they did it. Based on that, most of us, when we picture Peter, picture him as a businessman, as a fisherman, as struggling. That it wasn't a great business. He wasn't making a lot of money. And so it was easy for him to walk away from it. We even apply some of the things that we know about Peter scripturally. When Jesus came to him and said, hey, I want you to go out and put your nets out, they said, we fished all night long and we haven't caught a thing. Don't ask us to go back out and put our nets down. Jesus said, go back out. And they said, okay, we'll do it for you. And they did, and a miraculous catch of fish, and so on. We see a little bit of discouragement in the Gospels. But if we will look deeply into the Gospels, we may very well find something different. I spent some time this past week with some scholars that have looked at Peter's life through a different lens, and each one of them believed, each one of them, there's at least four that I was with, they believed that Peter was quite successful in his business. And they based that on passages like this in Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. That was to Peter's house. Listen to this. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. The entire city of Capernaum was gathered outside Peter's door. The very implication of that is that Peter had to have a significant house. 
And he had to have some land around that house in order for the entire city to come and gather there. So then follow the implication all the way through. Peter, more than likely, was quite successful in his business. He wasn't struggling if he could afford a place like this. Today, when you go to the city of Capernaum, they'll take you to what is widely believed to be Peter's house. It seems very prominent within this port city, right on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. So now when you think of Peter leaving because Jesus said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men, he wasn't just leaving a struggling business where he couldn't make ends meet. He walked away from a successful, thriving business. By the way, when you go to Israel today, if you happen to be along the Sea of Galilee, you can easily have the opportunity to eat something called St. Peter's Fish. The only place that you can get St. Peter's Fish is from the Sea of Galilee. It's named after Peter. So, there's strong probability and great implication that Peter was successful. So when they saw him as an uneducated common man, therefore there's no way he could have written these excellent letters the way he did, maybe, just maybe, those skeptics are making a mistake. There are a myriad of other reasons for us to believe that Peter is actually the author of this book. Those that would try to take that away from him, well, they're just skeptics. That's the best way to say it. They're skeptics that are throwing darts at a board trying to take away the validity of the Word of God. I can say emphatically that I believe Peter is the author of First and Second Peter. And I believe that he wrote these books just a few months before he would lose his life for the name of Jesus Christ. And that puts even greater power behind him. So rather than boring you with the details of why I believe he is the author of the book, let's just take a look at who Peter is. I want to share 20 things with you. They're going to come really fast. They'll be up here on the screen. They're also on your church app, so you don't have to try to write them down and keep up with me. I'll just go through them, and you can go on the app if you have that, and you'll see them. Number one, Peter was the acknowledged leader and spokesman of the Twelve. Number two, his name is at the top of all of the New Testament lists of the apostles. Number three, Simon was his birth name. At their first meeting, Jesus gave him the name Cephas, which is Aramaic for rock, and Peter is the Greek equivalent of Cephas. Number four, the last time Jesus called him Simon was on the shore of the sea after the resurrection. Let's push pause there for just a second. Chelsea, go back just one. Look at number four. The last time Jesus called him Simon was on the shore of the sea after the resurrection. Now, there's incredible significance in that. The last time Peter is known as Simon in Scripture was right there. And there were times when Jesus himself would call him Cephas or Peter, but then he would go back to calling him Simon. Almost to a T, every time that happened was when Peter was struggling Jesus would remind him of who he used to be by calling him Simon. And then he called him Simon the last time on the Sea of Galilee, right on the shore. And after that, after that, Peter was Peter. He lived a new life, which is pretty cool. Number five, 
Peter and his brother ran a successful fishing business on the Sea of Galilee, number six. Originally from Bethsaida, he later moved to Capernaum. Number seven, he took the lead in finding a replacement for Judas Iscariot. Number eight, Peter fearlessly preached the gospel. Number nine, he miraculously healed the sick. Number 10, he opened the doors to the kingdom to the Jews, the Samaritans, and the Gentiles. Number 11, Peter is often known as the apostle to the Jews. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Number 12, he confronted Simon the magician. Number 13, he unhesitantly disciplined sinning church members. Number 14, Peter visited Antioch, Corinth, and seemingly many churches in Asia Minor. Number 15, Peter was married. Number 16, Jesus healed his mother-in-law. Number 17, after the resurrection, his wife accompanied him on his missionary travels. Number 18, he was martyred by Nero shortly after completing the books of 1 and 2 Peter. Number 19, undeterred, it is widely accepted that his wife continued their ministry for roughly 25 to 30 more years after Peter died. Number 20, Tradition holds he was crucified upside down. When it was said he was to be crucified in Rome, he requested to be upside down out of reverence and respect for Jesus Christ, his Lord and his Savior. So when Peter starts his book out, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, that's, that's who wrote this book. Just those 20 things alone put a lot of authority to the man who wrote these books. Oh, we need to pay attention. But not only do we need to pay attention to the author of the book, we need to pay attention to the recipients of the book. Did you see that in what we read? Let's go back. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, and Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. He's writing to a group of people that he lumps together as members of the dispersion. We also call it the diaspora. The diaspora of the dispersion happened at a time that was not a secret to God, and it didn't surprise him. It was quite purposeful. But you have to go back into the book of Acts to really understand it. Now, we're going to skip around a whole bunch, and we're going to do it at lightning speed. So you got to hang with me through this. When Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, he was preaching at what we refer to as Pentecost. Now, let me give you just a little bit of background. I took this off of a Jewish, Messianic Jewish website just to give some context and some understanding to why all these people were there. Fifty days after the resurrection, fifty days after the resurrection, Jewish people from all over the region came to Jerusalem. Peter would preach on the southern steps of the temple 50 days after the resurrection to a large crowd of people that had been gathered there by God himself. Now listen to this. On the Jewish calendar, the holiday is held 50 days after the second day of Passover during the days of the first and second temples. Now, this holiday that we're talking about is called Shavuot. 
It'll be right up here. That is the Jewish holiday that brought all of these folks to Jerusalem. Shavuot was a harvest festival called the Festival of Harvest um, in Exodus 23, verse 16. Sheaves of barley, the winter crop, were brought to the temple each day, beginning on Passover until Shavuot, the beginning of the harvest season 50 days later. It was a joyous celebration with the people bringing the first fruits of their harvest to the temple with thanksgiving to God for his provision. Jewish oral tradition builds upon the details spelled out in the Bible and provides us with a beautiful description of bringing the bikram, the first fruits, with great pomp and ceremony. The people would travel to Jerusalem with their first fruits in baskets carried on their shoulders. An ox with gilded horns and a crown of olive tree branches would lead the way. The journey would be accompanied by music and song. As they entered the city, the craftsmen, officers, and governors would greet them, saying, Our people enter in peace. A musician playing the flute would lead the procession and accompany the pilgrims to the temple. Upon reaching the temple, the first fruits would be given to the priest. Prescribed passages from the Bible, specifically from Deuteronomy 26, would be read, recounting the difficulties the Israelites encountered before settling in the land of Israel. The ceremony would conclude with giving thanks to God for bringing the people to a land flowing with milk and honey, concluding with these words, And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. Again, that's from the book of Deuteronomy. The people would then present their baskets to God, after which there was much rejoicing and feasting before returning home. During that time, Shavuot was a celebration of the harvest. It has since become something significantly greater to the Jewish people. Take a look at this. This is from a different website. Shavuot, the Jewish Pentecost, is a holiday that today commemorates the single most important event in Israel's history, the giving of the Torah, the first five books in the Hebrew Bible, to Moses at Mount Sinai. Although it is not as well known among non-Jews as Passover or Sakat, the Feast of Booths, it is one of the three major festivals often called pilgrim festivals because in Bible times all Jewish males were required to observe them at the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. Christians will be more familiar with the Greek name for Shabbat, Pentecost, the holiday that Jesus' followers were observing in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit was given to them. Since Pentecost is the Greek word for 50, and as Shavuot occurs 50 days after the first day of Passover, it was referred to as Pentecost in the Christian Bible. Now that comes from the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews. Here's the whole point. 50 days after the resurrection, all of these Jewish people from all across the land gathered there, and they came to worship the Lord, and the Holy Spirit descended on Peter and Peter preached. You can read his entire sermon in Acts chapter 2. At the end of that sermon, people said, what must we do to be saved? The Bible would tell us they were cut to the heart as they heard what Peter had to say. And they said, what must we do to be saved? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise will be for you and for your children and your children's children. That was his answer to them. And they paid attention. They paid attention. 
They repented of their sin, and they were baptized, and they stayed in Jerusalem. They didn't go home. They wanted to remain right there where Peter was at and where the apostles were at. So they, like Peter, left their old way of life and they started to live in Jerusalem, which became a real interesting thing because instantly 3,000 were added to their number and the apostles had to figure out where are they going to live? How are they going to eat? How will we find jobs for them so that they can support themselves? And the church began right there, being the church, taking care of the needs of the people. And it wouldn't be that long after this that this group of new believers would be given the name Christian, and they would start to live as such, as Christians. They didn't want to leave. They wanted to be where Peter was at. They wanted to be where the apostles were at. Now, here's the struggle of that. After the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the the gathering of the church and the launch of the church, when the enemies of Jesus discovered that they could no longer do anything to keep Him quiet, because Jesus had been crucified, they thought they won the battle three days later, they knew they hadn't, because Jesus had come out of the grave, and then Jesus presented Himself to all of these people and for A few days after the resurrection, Jesus is there, 40 days of preaching and presenting himself. He ascended into heaven, and 10 days later, the Holy Spirit comes, and and man, what an amazing thing. When they could no longer silence him, the enemies of Jesus turned their attention to his bride, and they tried to silence the church, and the enemies of Jesus are still trying to do the same thing. They're trying to silence the church. And that's why the diaspora happened. That's why the dispersion happened. All of these people that had come to hear, or not to hear, but they came into Jerusalem and they heard the gospel and their lives were forever changed by it. In Acts chapter 8, they found themselves heading home years later. This is Acts chapter 8, verse 1, right after Stephen was martyred. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him, but Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. If you're a note-taker in your Bible, you might want to write in the margin, diaspora or dispersion. That was the great dispersion that Peter was talking about. So now, all of these people went back to their homes because it wasn't safe to stay in Jerusalem. They dispersed. And the enemies of Jesus thought they won another battle, but what they didn't account for was the fact that all these people that dispersed during the great dispersion took the gospel with them. And they went and shared it in all these other places. And Peter who had remained in Jerusalem because Peter was undeterred and he was unafraid in his presentation of the gospel as Saul was persecuting the church and the leaders of the Jewish people were trying to silence the church. Peter stood in the middle of Jerusalem and said, if you're looking for me, you don't have to look very hard. This is where I'm at. And the other apostles stayed with him. Doesn't that just give you goosebumps? Peter stayed right there as everybody else was headed out. Because his job wasn't done yet. He still had a couple of keys that he had to use. 
He had to open the gospel to the Samaritans and then to the Gentiles. And Jerusalem was the place for that to happen. So he stood his ground. Peter always stood his ground. He stood right in the center of Jerusalem and said, Here I am. If you're looking for me, come get me. Thirty years later, in Rome, they would. Nero would. But in between that time, he went and visited these churches. Brand new churches that were started after the dispersion. And he encouraged the hearts of those people. And now, months before his death, he wrote letters to them. He wanted to encourage them. He wanted to build them up. He wanted to remind them what faithfulness to the very end looked like. He would live it himself, faithful to the very end. And he wrote words to help us live the same way, to live faithful to the very end. No matter what happens, to live faithful to the very end. Folks, the church is still being persecuted today just like it was at the dispersion. That will not stop. In fact, it will only intensify between now and the return of Jesus. The Bible is very clear about that. The persecution of the church leading up to the second coming will only intensify. We need books like First and Second Peter to help us stand strong to the very end. So I want to encourage you over these weeks that we're studying this book or these books to read them over and over and over again. First and Second Peter, they're not very long. Read them. And as you do, you ask God what He has for you in them. It'll be personal. It'll be what you need. The Holy Spirit will be faithful to grant it to you. So read them and receive what God has for you. I will do my best to help bring sense to them over the weeks that we have, just as Ezra would do. But you read them. It's a challenge that if taken seriously, will have great reward. Why don't you stand with me? We're going to pray together and then Dean will close our service. Father in heaven, I'm so thankful for Peter. I'm so thankful that you chose him. The more we get to know about him, the more, more we like him. The easier it is to like him. And boy, do I ever like him. The things that he wrote are so practical, so encouraging, so inspirational. Lord, thank you for including those in your word and allowing us to hold them in our hands. So I pray we'll be inspired and encouraged by the things that we'll be exploring together. But Father, more than anything, I want to pray for those that don't yet know you. I pray that that will change quickly. And as it does, I pray that they will live transformed lives just as Peter and the other apostles and those of the dispersion did. Just as those around them are. I pray, Lord, for those that need to make today the day of salvation. Pray for others that came carrying heavy burdens that become distractions. I pray, Lord, that those burdens will be lifted. I pray that they'll allow others to help carry them. So today I pray 
will be a day of freedom. And I'm asking all of that in Jesus' name. Amen.